Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. I've thought of that like uh, the pre- like uh, at least some kind of spooky Twilight Zone about somebody who steals some podcast equipment out of the trunk of a car and doesn't realize that the equipment is haunted, you know. And then, right? Some I don't know. That's as far as I've gotten with that. Brilliant idea. Merging with Simulator in three, two, one. Aloha. Which universe will you choose today? My name's Clancy. Clancy! Could I um, interview you for my space cast? Are you worried because it seems like we're all about to die? Is that a yes? What does death look like to you? I think we need to simplify this. Your life that you thought was real was just a dream. Holy shit. you a metaphor? Stop fighting it. Face the void. Just be here now. Cut to commercial. (laughs) (laughs) You couldn't have picked a better time to release the Midnight Gospel. You're helping so many people to be their best selves during a crisis. Could you talk about the feeling of release creating this show versus the release that's giving so many people globally absorbing it? It's dreamlike. The whole thing was dreamlike. Uh... And it's there's an accelerating dreaminess to it in the sense that getting to work on the show with Pendleton Ward and Titmouse was already this fabulous situation that for me, a podcaster and a comedian, you know, it, it was something that I just hadn't really predicted in my mind. You know, when you're thinking about, well, you know, maybe the podcast will become very popular or maybe, you know, who knows, there'll be some kind of like you know, TV connection that happens because of the podcast or, you know, whenever you're fantasizing about what would the next level be? I never in a million years thought that I would get so lucky that the creator of Adventure Time would, you know, join forces with me and help help and, and, and make a show with me. So that was already dreamy. Working in an animation studio is incredibly strange and psychedelic. It's very dark in these places because they have to have the right kind of lighting so they could uh, like, uh, like, be precise in the colors that they're using. So there's already this strange alien landscape of artists bringing the the cumulative idea of midnight gospel out of all of our brains and into the world. So there's this crazy alchemy that's happening in podcast studios, uh, or I'm sorry, in animation studios, which is crazy. And then, of course we release it and it happens to coincide with a global pandemic, which obviously Mm. we had no idea was coming. And so suddenly I'm getting to experience these, you know, connections to people all over the planet who are enjoying midnight gospel and sending me these heavy, heavy messages uh, about, you know, what's happening to them during the pandemic, you know, nurses who are, really connecting to the episode with my mom because they've been dealing with loss and mm. just, you know, to, so that adds another layer of dreamy 
surrealness to the entire thing that um, has been wonderful, but somewhat disorienting. You've often described Clancy as being somebody who's very much real in your life, so much so that you consider him a brother. How much has Clancy revealed that you're not alone and that you're surrounded by billions of different versions of yourself disguised as people? Wow. Well, I hadn't thought of it in that way till you just said it, and that's beautiful. I, you know, the uh, when I'm... There's this Buddha story about a woman who goes to the Buddha, and I and I think this is more of a folk tale than an you know actually from Buddhist scripture, but I, I'm not sure because I've heard it from other religions too. But in this case, the uh, a, a woman goes to the Buddha because she has lost her child and is completely catastrophically heartbroken, and as you would be. And he, and she wants him to help. She wants him to bring the child back to life or to do something. And so he says, you know, go, I want you to go to everyone's house. And when you find a person who has not experienced loss, ask them for a, a mustard seed and bring that back to me. And so he sends her on this errand where she goes around the village and around her where she lives. And of course, everyone, you know, connects to her at that level of having lost someone. It's like, oh, no, I lost my mom last week or I lost my friend a year ago. And then over the over that journey, of course, she has the great realization that one thing that connects us is that we are all a family that lives within the reality of impermanence. And that, to me, that is the unmasking that you're talking about, I think, which is that we, we all share an identity, not just in the grief, but in the, well, the price for grief is loving deeply. And, and grief is, I guess you could say, just the uh, a sort of on the continuum of love. And so that has been something that I've definitely learned is that, you know, all of us are in this, not just in the pandemic, but are in this human experience that involves coming to terms with loss. Simultaneously, absolutely. Was Clancy always this character we see in a show? Was he always this lovable and likable? Well, this was one of the many, many, many great things that Pendleton helped helped or, or innovated in the show. He is so good at making characters likable and lovable. And my problem is as a comic and a comic who often in a kind of lazy way veers into edginess and the dark side and like dark comedy, uh, because sometimes that's a little easier than writing a joke, you know, and, and in my early days of comedy, especially that was something that I, would that became a kind of embarrassing crutch to me when I look back on it. Uh, so my so in the beginning of Midnight Gospel, my instincts were would always veer onto that side, and, and sometimes the lines I might want to write for Clancy were not very likable. And Pendleton is just a master of not just you know making a character likable, but making a character authentic. Mm. You know, finding that place where. Uh, you know, there's a, it's not like it's, we're nerfing the character, creating some puffy cloud thing that's all sweet and stuff. But also, he's really good at knowing, okay, there's a line that if you cross it, your character stops being likable. And how do you, you know, I've, whenever I've been watching a film where the character has crossed that line and it hasn't been, it has, it, it doesn't have really anything to do with the plot or the character arc. It just seems like a bad writing decision. I, you feel it when you stop liking a character. And that's a, a really important line to be aware of. And so we had to, uh, you know, Pendleton was quite often pulling me back from crossing over that line, uh, not just in writing, but also in directing Clancy. Because, um, you know, just and saying a thing with a little too much bitterness in it or a little too much anger in it can have the exact same effect. 
Yeah, yeah. What about Netflix? Where was Netflix in terms of meeting you guys in that line and allowing you to have the creative relationship that you had together? You know, I think of Netflix now as like Hunter S. Thompson and level of gonzo insanity. Like when I consider what they let us do, right. it's it's not just like, wow, they took a risk. It's like, wow, like were you guys on a bender or something when you let us do this? Like, you know what I mean? There was, there's no, we showed them, um, we showed them three, maybe six minutes of an animatic Pendleton did. And we gave them this idea, which I did. We didn't tiptoe around. I even told them, you know, those lantern headed creatures, uh, that you milk for green oil. I was like telling them like, yeah, I, I saw them in a DMT vision at burning man. And, I remember is that slipping out of my mouth, you know, this, my stomach dropping and I'm about to look over at Pendleton apologetically. Like, I guess I blew it, man. And then I look around and they're laughing and they're like, Whoa, that's cool. And then they ordered a bunch of episodes and then they didn't just order the episodes, but they really, really, really let us follow our instincts. And there were a few times where they gave us some notes, but those notes were almost always, I, I would say a hundred percent of the time we agreed with it. And then, and so, and then, and then somewhere along the course of the production, you know, we all got into a true collaboration, which I think, uh, is an, is maybe going to be the new normal when it comes to making stuff. I think this is the next generation of, uh, collaboration between, creators and networks and it's not going to be that stereotypical uh you know i don't know producer who's like trying to dumb stuff down to please advertisers but i think it's more like i mean netflix it's a i don't they're they're essentially they own everything right there's they so the people that are working for them are really talented you know i don't want to sound like i'm kissing their ass but this has been my experience with them you know, and, and uh, I've had experience with other companies that have been fine and, and great, but nothing like this, where after the meeting's over, you don't want it to end, you know, because you're enjoying just like yapping with these people who are artists, too. It was really cool. It's almost as if Netflix are bridging the gap for more experiences to happen, like you say, like this. Can you talk about the challenges striking a balance between meeting a show's dialogue and your voice transmitting your feelings and philosophies through animation, which is a completely different world than your podcast, of course? Yeah, well, this was the this was the scary part because they, you know, they squeezed the trigger on this thing. They didn't ask for a pilot and we had this idea of like, yeah, we're going to take podcast dialogue and we're going to match it to various apocalypses. And we had, you know, six minutes of proof of concept that was funny. But then suddenly we realized, oh my God, this is not what, this is not just laying down podcast dialogue and getting storyboards around that. This is actually like in the, the first episode, man, it was so intense because we didn't have, much to refer to you know there there wasn't anything we could look at where this had been done before in the way we were doing it so we were definitely um bushwhacking our way through this what eventually became a process that we all understood and it was tough because you had we were realizing all these things along the way which is number one if you put too much plot into the story that clancy's experiencing as he goes on these journeys then it bends your mind a little bit because you're wondering what's around the corner. And then it's an uncomfortable feeling because you kind of want to listen to the conversation, but you want to know what's around the corner. And Hmm. so we had to really simplify all of our plots, which initially were really complex. For example, we wanted to spend more time in the chromatic ribbon and, you know, have Clancy maybe come out of the simulator back into the chromatic ribbon mid you know, episode to do whatever he was doing uh, during that episode. And we realized, oh, you can't do that. Not only can you not do that, you can barely spend any time up front at all. You've got to get right into the conversation, right into the particular apocalypse. And then within that apocalypse, if you put in too much plot, 
then it distorts things or fuzzes out the conversation. So we were always making these hard decisions between podcast conversation and plot. And also we had to bring people back in to record audio, which would act as the glue that glued the conversation to that world, you know, because mm. obviously when I'm interviewing Dr. Drew, it's not like he suddenly starts screaming expletives at zombies, you know, <laughs> you've got to bring him back in to get that. It really isn't easy, as you just said, to be able to maintain a shorthand rhythm visually as well as narratively and make it so that they both connect and these things function. And I think it's something that translates well in this show. Thank you. How much of what we see going on visually do you see as a reflection of your subconscious thoughts? Mm. Well, I would say it's a reflection of the subconscious of 120 people. Mm. And 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 I my so definitely my subconscious in, is in there and this was uh, another thing that uh, I learned working with Pendleton is he created a a real authentic collaboration and between um, us between between you know the quote creators of the show and all the animators and the directors and the storyboard artists and all the people who were involved in, in the show so that I think people felt really, really comfortable um, taking risks and bringing us ideas that we hadn't thought of and objecting to ideas that they didn't think were funny, which uh, depending on the way productions are run, sometimes an accidental authoritarianism can descend upon the crew where people become really afraid of challenging or offering up ideas uh, and that produces, a, 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 I think, a probably technically precise result, which sometimes is, is really good, I would imagine. I've heard, you know, like when you think of, when you look at like documentaries on Stanley Kubrick, you mm. know, he seems to be really a micromanager to some degree. I could be wrong about that, but certainly he's the boss. And with Pendleton, he easily could have taken on that role. Not in, And I don't mean it like in a dark way. I just mean he made Adventure Time. And he's got massive amounts of experience. And there are other people working on the show as well who could have easily leaned in to, to that and accidentally sort of um, dimmed other people's perspective based on experience. And then, But Pendleton, what he did is really glued everybody together with a kind of uh, equanimous approach to, to everyone. And so we ended up getting a group mind. And that group mind started spitting out stuff that to this day, when I watch it, I marvel at it because I, you know, it's certainly, I didn't, I didn't intend certain symbols to emerge there, but somebody did. And, you know, I know some of them Pendleton didn't. So who did it? Who knows? There were 120 people. So yeah, it's a, it's a subconscious for sure, but it's a subconscious of a, of a pretty wonderful collaboration that happened at Titmouse. One of the many ways that makes Clancy so relatable as a character is that, like yourself, he has this lust for living within the conversations he hasn't had, and he knows these conversations are conversations he needs and craves to be able to identify the person he wants to become. He's almost this example that dreamers can be anywhere and have the best view. Do you feel that, as humans, if we stop dreaming, we've started dying? Hmm. Well... You know, there's a wonderful, crazy yoga that the Tibetans have called the yoga of dreaming and sleep. And in this yoga, the invitation is really psychedelic, which is to begin to ask yourself, what's the difference between my waking experience and my dream experience? And to start really exploring that and then not just start exploring it, but begin to put yourself whenever you uh, gain, when you, when you come back to yourself and into a present moment state of awareness, begin to not imagine that you're in a dream, but just recognize, oh yeah, you're actually in a dream and that your dreams are dreams inside of dreams, but you're in a dream right now that you really can't stop dreaming any more than a fish can stop being wet uh, without, you know, literally, if a fish is drying up, there's trouble. Uh, similarly, I would say that the human experience 
is a dream experience. We are in a kind of daydream, which is that our moment to moment is quite often taken up by a kind of um, focus or uh, attention on our mental continuum. And the mental continuum is so 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 much, how would you say, it's so much less solid than the experience of just, you know, being, feeling your ass on the seat or touching the ground with your feet or feeling matter around you. We find ourselves coming out of these fantasies involving our careers, our loved ones, our fears, our desires. Every once in a while, we're like, holy shit, I'm in a world. And, and then we're generally suctioned back up into that mental continuum again without even being aware of it. And so this is where people will say, man, you really zoned out or whatever. But some people, I certainly have been one of them, that find ourselves zoned out for months at a time, completely lost in arguments that we were had with people years and years ago. So I would say, to answer your question, there the... I would answer it with a question, which is how do we stop dreaming? Is that even possible? And what would the world be like if we were suddenly no longer in the dream of this very temporary human incarnation? Uh, I don't have an answer for that, but maybe that is death. I don't know. Do you think that making midnight gospel has been the product of many crazy dreams? Have you had many pandemic dreams in lockdown? Yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, right now because of this damn pandemic and I've, I'm having pandemic dreams, which is a new genre of dreams. Many people are having these pandemic dreams, which are a result of a shared, I think, focus on something a global focus so we, we have a group mind happening right now and we're all focused on our and, and not just focused on this new reality but our patterns have been completely readjusted uh in an attempt to uh deal with this new reality so yeah my dreams have been fucking nuts man last night i dreamed there's this wonderful church i used to go to in la called agape and I dreamed I went there with Elon Musk last <laughs> night. <laughs> it was awesome. It was so just weird. I'm in like one of Elon Musk crazy. It wasn't like a Tesla. I don't know what it was. Some experimental sports car. I'm excited that I get to be hanging out with Elon Musk. Right. I guess Elon Musk told me, I want to go to church. So I'm like, oh, you got to check out this Agape church with Michael Beckwith. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Then we get to the church and I had to use the bathroom. This is where it turns into an insecurity dream. I go into the bathroom. Someone's done that thing where they've like clogged up the toilet. So it's like brimming over with water, but I've got to piss so bad. I just start peeing in the water. <laughs> and then like the piss like get, gets into the floor of the bathroom. I feel terribly guilty about this. I'm like, what are you doing? You're basically pissing on a church. And then uh, I then found Elon Musk and was really excited that he was clearly enjoying listening to this like incredible person, Michael Beckwith, talk about uh, self-actualization and recognizing that you're the uh, essentially the, the mind of, of God to, that has come together in your person. And I remember he looked at me, he's like, I like this. And I thought, wow, I got this like ridiculous missionary pride. I brought Elon Musk to church. That was the dream, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, there's a correlation with you pissing in the show, isn't it? I mean, you do piss a lot. You talk about it in the show with your mum, don't you? Well, I mean, it's a human. I mean, I think like, <laughs> we, I, like if you really think about it, uh, it's a reality, you know, that we right. all have to piss and shit. <laughs> right. and, and we have bizarre relationships with that reality that, uh, you know, are, are I think... Uh, really shine a light on how uh, we have this uncomfortable um, relationship, a lot of us do, not just with those natural processes, 
things, but with, you know, living in a body in general, you mm. know, there really is this sense of, uh, whoa, I, you know, we're not going to be in this thing that long relative to universal time. And essentially, if you look at like how quickly time passes in your own life, you can see that we're not hanging around here that long. This is, if anything, it's like a really nice um, gate at an airport where you're waiting for a flight to come in. And so uh, I think there is a kind of funny thing that we as humans have to deal with, which is to me being a human is this uh, a, a, a simultaneous convergence of, uh, the, of the earth and the temporary quality of earth, you know, son of dust and all that. Uh, mixed in with this seemingly a sense of the eternal soul, which, you know, if you read in the Bhagavad Gita, there's this wonderful verse that goes, never was there a time when I did not exist, nor you, uh, nor any of these kings, nor at any point in the future shall any of us cease to be. And uh, it goes on to sort of describe the soul. It cannot be cut. It cannot be burnt. It cannot be withered by the wind. It never came into being. It will not come into being. It was not born. It will never die. It will never cease to exist. So I think we find ourselves in this hilarious condition of feeling some weird instinct that we're eternal mixed in with the very real truth of being in a rapidly disintegrating body that's being aerosolized by time, which has to take shits and piss and eat, you know, and the, these are all part of the fascinating paradoxical experience of riding around and meat, you know? So I think it's good to acknowledge that. At least I, I think that's why it shows up in the podcast or in the in the show. It helps add to the authenticity of, of what it's like to be a Clancy. Like you say, it's become this taboo subject to talk about these things in life when there's such a fabric of the experiences we're going through and living. That's right. Yeah, there's either a taboo of talking about them or or there's people become reactionary and they become fixated on them. Either way, you end up with a kind of, you know, a relationship with your incarnation that is sort of accidentally imbalanced, which is normal. I mean, I'd say that is the quality of being alive is there has to there's some form of imbalance. How are you going to suddenly just be balanced in a a, a world where old age disease and death are certainties and there isn't for a lot of us we weren't born into families where there was a lot of um teaching regarding the the, the that deeper predicament and so yeah man it's a, certainly a uh you know as as uh, Prabhupada, the founder of the Hare krishna said uh, he, being human is an embarrassing situation and it doesn't have to be but it is an embarrassing situation if you're uh ignorant and not ignorant in the sense of like dumb but ignorant in the sense of you have you're actively ignoring aspects of yourself that because it's too painful right. or too embarrassing to deal with rejection yeah you're rejecting yourself which is like how do you even do that it's clearly if you think you're rejecting yourself uh you you're you've run into a real like just logical problem which is okay well what what's the rejector and what's the the part of that's being rejected and the part that's being rejected where is that part hanging out uh, does it just vanish of course not it's still there it's i guess akin to like shining a flashlight around a room where in one corner we have all of the base things that we don't want to imagine exist inside of us. I guess what Freud called the id or whatever. And then on the other side of the room, we have all the shit that we wish we were, that we're most certainly not. The version of ourselves with abs, the version of ourselves that calls people back in time and answers emails when we're supposed to and does charity work and is, uh, you know, essentially like some combination of like Gandhi and um, Jim Morrison. I'm speaking for myself here. We'll never be that. And then we've got the thing that's shining the flashlight around the room on all of these ridiculous uh, aspects of ourself, which m most of them aren't even real, and we never once look at who's holding the light, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> has, has Duncan Trussell ever had to reject parts of yourself and your habits in order to access new habits with this show? Well, I had to confront parts of myself, uh, actually, mm. because because I, I, I think that it, you know, first of all, if there is some hope of rejecting a part of yourself, which I don't really think there is, uh, 
then first we're going to have to confront that part of ourselves for the right. true rejection to happen, you know? And, but that being said, uh, you, you know, I don't know if you've ever done this before, but I, I have quite often gotten caught up in the talk about embarrassing, the embarrassing project of trying to fix people around me instead of working on myself. I don't know mm. if you've ever done that before. Absolutely. But holy, whoa, good luck. Because people sense that you are and like implicitly rejecting them. In other words, you decide in your mind that your friend Henry or whatever is drinking too much. And so you decide that you're going to take on the project of helping Henry stop drinking. Then you're sitting around with Henry. He goes to get a beer or whatever. He's, you don't even say anything, but he sees the look you give him, which is the same look anyone who loves him has been giving him for a while. And he senses this rejection. The rejection feeds the addiction. And then it makes him want the beer more. But more than that, he gets to, you know, get, do that terrible thing drunk people do. I certainly d have done it when I'm drinking where you become this drunken martyr. Oh, it's the worst. And this continues this dark cycle that, that you realize, oh, my God, I'm just like blowing on the fire here. When right. uh, if, you know, you do something where you're hanging out with somebody, you just let them be themselves. And you let them be themselves as long as it's not hurting you directly. You know, I'm not I'm not advocating putting up with someone's abuse, but I'm saying you just let someone be who they are, respecting their incarnation, respecting where they're at is perfect. And you really do that. Holy shit. All of a sudden, the thing you were hoping would happen seems to naturally start happening. They seem to like loosen up and open up to you at the very least. So to answer your question, man, I think for my own self, having to like look into the parts of me that my ego, you know, that out of mm. a fear that the show wouldn't be good, I, I, it was in the very beginning, it, I got too tight. In Buddhism, there's a saying, not too tight, not too loose. And so I got too tight and because I was scared that it wouldn't be funny, there wouldn't it wouldn't be funny enough, there, the, the jokes wouldn't hit. And I was imagining that because I had done stand-up comedy for so long, I had some edge in the comedy department, which, oh my God, that is the most ridiculous thing. Pendleton's one of the funniest people ever. And storyboard artists, the storyboard artists we were using, they're brilliantly funny. So I had to like learn how to back off. I had to look at the parts of myself that wanted to be right when it came to certain creative decisions and realize that just because I want to be right doesn't mean that I am. And that my like desire to be right or to be like the quote hero when it came to making stuff funny when storyboard artists were coming up with equally funny, if not funnier ideas, could potentially have the opposite effect that I wanted on the show, much like the ridiculous example of Henry, the alcoholic friend. And so, you know, looking at that myself and not beating myself up for it, recognizing, oh, shit, it's just we don't want Henry to drink anymore because he's like, you know, shitting blood and puking all the time. He's going to he's been in jail twice. You know, similarly, I, you know, I, I, I wanted the, you know, when you are trying to exert creative control, more than likely you're doing it because you want the show to be good. Mm. There's, it's, you know, and you got to respect that in yourself. That's beautiful, really. Uh, but that be, but you know, that that doesn't mean that it's right. So Pendleton really taught me how to do that. And any time, like in the beginning, I got an arm, I got in a couple of arm wrestling matches with some storyboard artists. And, you know, what I would make sure I did after they would demonstrate that their idea was funnier is in front of as many people as I could say, you were right. I was wrong. And I really appreciate that you fought for that idea because that was to me like, you know, that, that, that was a humbling thing. But I knew if I didn't do that, then it could produce this sense that I, of, of people feeling like a, that I was like an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was like being a dick and pretending, well, okay, I guess you were right this time. I really wanted people to understand that my, my, uh, I wasn't looking to be right. I was looking for the show to be the best it could be. I wanted to ask yourself about self-censorship and how when we enter adulthood, we start screening which feelings are appropriate to feel in public or experience or express and which ones we keep hidden. How, how important is it to express your unfiltered best version of yourself without rejecting any feelings whatsoever? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I think the best version of yourself is going to be a part of you that doesn't reject your feelings. I mean, this is the, like, just think, like, every single day, 
you get a chance to book to like as much as you can open yourself up to being the best version of yourself. And for me, that is a collaboration with God. I use the God word, replace the word with anything you want that doesn't make you cringe. A lot of people have like rough connections to that word, but for me, it's a term of convenience. So I think we find ourselves in this glorious collaboration with a, with the divine, with eternity. And uh, it's a joy, man. It's a joy that we have been given this chance to sort of paint the universe with the thing that's breathing the universe out in every single moment. And we're part of that exhalation. And there's an invitation in every single moment to um, reach out to that and not reach out in some bullshit formal, oh, great, sweet creator of all things, please forgive my... (laughs) But you know what I mean? But more like, it kind of reminds me of when I'm on the trampoline with my 16-month-old. And I and there's a wildness to a toddler and a and a savagery to a toddler. I'll sometimes like the other day I sat down on the couch with him in the morning to give him and with a bottle of milk to give him. He's sitting there with his mom. I sat down, I, I hand the milk to him, he takes the milk, he looks at me and he slaps me. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't, there was no animosity there. It was, it was like he's experimenting with just what happens if I slap my dad. That's you know? his stand-up. That's his version of stand-up comedy. Exactly. It was, <laughs> as a comic, recognizing like, damn, that is like savage and hilarious. But also, I got to be your dad. And you cannot yeah. slap people who bring you milk. <laughs> but that being said, that wildness of a brand new being to the universe reminds me of God. And I think that... uh to to really understand that where you're at right now is just where you need to be and that you the reason you're here is because you're getting a chance to you know what to go back to Michael Beckwith what Michael Beckwith calls to co-create the universe with God and that you can trust that that everything about you is just as perfect and great and wonderful as anything you see outside of you as perfect as a tree or a flower and that 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 by this allows you to not necessarily cringe or turn away from those feelings you have that you don't think are like ready to be in public necessarily. Now that doesn't mean if you're feeling angry that you have to react to that by being mean to the people around you, but it also doesn't mean if you're feeling angry that uh, you have to suppress that. If you're feeling angry, you're feeling angry. What are you going to do? It's there. And hopefully you've found yourself around people who in some way, when you say to them, I'm fucking angry right now, they're not going to shame you or punish you for being as you are, you know, uh, and, but that's got to start with you, not shaming or punishing yourself because you're not, your, your internal universe isn't matching the perfect version of yourself that you wish you were. That would, that's what I think. What do you think being a parent has taught you about being in a moment and seeing people Versus being seen by people. Whoa. Wow, what a question, man. Yeah, right. That's brilliant. Yeah, well, see, yeah. Because if, if you have the project of being seen by people, and which I certainly have had in the past, and it, it, you know, the project is you don't, not just being seen, but it's like you want to be seen in a certain way. And so then all this, that's where you develop your identity and, you know, your onstage personality, so to speak. Uh, not on stage, like literally on stage, but on stage when you're around people and trying to be the thing or whatever. And so, yeah, that's an all-consuming project for sure. But mm. as a parent, if I have found that the more that I attempt to maintain my onstage personality at the cost of giving my son the present moment attention that, you know, he deserves. This is his childhood, man. And uh, I did my childhood, you know, but this is my kid's childhood right now. And so I I have to give up my, as much as I can, I don't think, I certainly don't think I'll ever fully give up my own desire to be like loved by people or to seem cool. But I have found that just as much as I can, giving up that, particular project when I'm around my son and, you know, recognizing that, yeah, I mean, right now, you know, he's, um, you know, he's not like, he's not 
clearly he's not building computers or something like that. You know, he's learning about space and, and, and learning about just the most fundamental elemental qualities of what it, what it means to be embodied in a material universe. Uh, but you know, my God, want the moment you recognize that that is as powerful and valid of an experience as the most advanced scientist in a, some laboratory working on the cure for, I don't know, COVID-19, and, and recognize that just because he's pre-linguistic or he only has, you know, a, 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 a relatively tiny number of words that he can use to express himself, he feels it when I tune in to where he's at in a non-judgmental way. And when I'm really honoring his his selfness, his experience, his childhood, and not sitting there like thinking about who I need to call, the emails I need to send. No parent can pull, fully pull this off. If you can, congrats. I'm not trying to do some fucking guilt trip. Look at your damn phone. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Watch the wheels on the bus go round and round cartoon right. for the 80th time in a row and be like, oh my God, I'm so in this moment with you, my child. <laughs> no, that's not you either. Because you that's the weird thing, isn't it? You, you have to also be yourself too, you know, it's just, and that's the balancing act, right? I think that's the balancing act is because, you know, it's not like there's just one right way to be. It's moment to moment to moment. I just feel the more I'm there with him and the more I'm creating this space of attention that he can function inside of where he knows I, I'm like aware that just because he can't say complex words or structure sentences yet, I don't think he's like a, a like a meatloaf or a cat, which I think some people make that mistake with kids. You know, this is a, a brilliant mind. It just doesn't have words quite yet. And they feel it. It's very similar, as which this sounds really dark. But when you're around someone who's dying and they can't talk, you know, some people just immediately imagine that they've checked out. And uh, that's not the case, man. They can feel your attention. They can feel the field of awareness. And when you're around people who are in that situation and you bring that to them, you'll notice there's sometimes they relax a little bit. You can feel the connection that happens with them. You know, it's just really easy to get sort of, it's really easy to get confused and think if something isn't talking or something isn't awake or something isn't, you know, functioning as you imagine a sentient thing should function. Therefore, it's not sentient or there with you. So that's a long, complex answer to your question. I'm sorry about that. No, 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 don't be. That was everything I wanted your answer to be when asking you the question. Speaking of questions, what are some of the most nourishing questions that have been provoked unintentionally as a response to people's different perspectives and interpretations watching the show? Well... You know, I think the big question that, you know, this is a, I'm, this is not a question that was necessarily provoked by the show, but the memory of this question has emerged into my mind because of the show. And this is a con conversation I had at Burning Man where, you know, if, if you, have you ever been to the burn? I haven't. I haven't. No, oh, I, I know you were going to go this year, weren't you? Well, damn it. Yeah, we were. Yeah. Well, you know what? The burn will always be there, just not this year. But the uh, you how know, is one, it? Well, it's it's a it's a mystical experience. It really is. It's an I can say this is my perspective. And the other beautiful thing about the burn is there any perspective is the right perspective, and it functions on every level. So if you want to go to a place where you're just gonna like have insane sex and get high as you've ever been in your life and watch crazy floats and listen to insanely beautiful powerful music uh then that is the burn but if you want to go to a mm. place that is going to really challenge you and like you know force you to uh maybe deal with shit that you've been avoiding uh that's the burn too for me it's kind of it, it has a guru quality to it in the sense that it's, it's not going to meet your expectations of what you think it should be like and your relationship with that is going to define your experience uh, right. uh, at, at the event. But, you know, if you open yourself up when you're there, you really can have like a series of the most insane synchronicities and a real like transformative experience, which I've had every time I've gone. But I had this wonderful, as, as, as a testament to that, uh, I was having this wonderful conversation with a 
you know, someone I just like, you just end up in these great conversations and we're talking and he was talking about Buckminster Fuller and he was saying that Buckminster Fuller uh, in some essay, I don't know where this came from, was uh, pointing out that one of the most important questions a person can ask is, is, glo- is world peace possible? You should ask yourself that. That's an important question as an individual living on a planet with a shit ton of other people to ask yourself. And not just answer it right away, but really think about it. Because we all know what the right answer would be, what the sweet answer would be to that. Yeah, world peace is possible. But really think, is it really possible? I mean, even if you come up with your own definition of global peace, let's just say broad strokes, the complete cessation of all global military military conflicts the uh and then maybe even add to that the um uh, the like reduction at the very least of military forces the removal of all you know military outposts from whatever particular country that exists in other lands that's there to you know quote protect the interests of whatever the particular state uh or empire that the, the military comes from and then um, not just because they're leaving and then it puts people in danger, but because there's no need to be there anymore. Now, the, let's just say that's kind of the definition. Forget all the other shit, but let's just imagine that alone, which the Marxist listening would be like, no, there's no world peace to like, you know, there's no world peace as long as we've got this fucked up class system, you know, but I'm just going to just say, let's start with that one. Just, we're not blowing up children anymore. And uh, so then you ask yourself that, is that even possible? And then listen to your body and see what it says. And I found this really annoying itch right in my heart when I asked that question, which seems to indicate to me that not only is it possible, it's attainable right now in the next 10 or 20 years. It's so frustrating because I don't know how to achieve that or attain that. I'm not an, I, 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 I don't even know how to say it. I'm not an economist. You know, I'm not a right. politician. So for me, the question, though, that has emerged with this show and, and suddenly being connected to uh, parts of the global community who have been moved by the show has really caused me to really start thinking that question again, to really start contemplating it and wondering it. And, and, and like and 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 I guess you could say hoping that in some way, shape or form. The midnight gospel becomes part of some some sort of art or any kind of output into the world that, you know, even if it's a meandering, like fuzzy, unfocused way, just starts pushing the dial a little closer to a world where that we could where there's peace. And um, so that's a question I keep asking, you know, is, is world peace possible? I think that might depend on how you define peace by your own admission within yourself, first and foremost. But then, of course, by that logic, you still exist in a world where not everybody thinks that way. Maybe the best way to answer that question would be to understand it subjectively first. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a, clearly, you know, the, the subjective, for, you know, let's find subjective peace first. Let's find, you know, some kind of, harmony in our own selves and then as a collective let's see what happens to the planet i mean that, that definitely if we're looking at a, a direct pathway to some kind of cessation of uh, you know state sponsored aggression in the world we're gonna have to figure out a way for our in our own lives to uh you know not be so aggressive to ourselves and then naturally as a result of that you'll stop being mean to the people around you like i'm someone who has had real issues with anger and has really dealt with you know uh, react being reactive and you know Mm. uh, i can't be that anymore i'm a dad you know i can't i can't do that i can't be that person anymore um even though it's still in me but i just can't like i i have to like lose now like i have to surrender to, to losing in the sense that for, you know, if being right, you, you know, it's, you can be right. And, but sometimes it's, who cares? You know, you're, you were right. Yeah, you're right. Uh, you're right. Maybe you're, uh, maybe someone in your household should have acted differently or done something differently. So maybe, maybe you're right. Like they really did fuck up. So what? You know, what so what? What does it mean? <laughs> yeah, who cares? Right. 
And then to get back to this idea of like, you know, performative humanness where you're, you know, that whole Jean-Paul Sartre idea, which is real. Like when you realize like, who the fuck am I performing for? I'm putting on this show for nobody. And I think a lot of people in their own lives, they're, they've, they've got this fantasy that they're like, you know, Clint Eastwood or something. And that every single moment they've got to be right. And no one's watching. No one's watching you when you're at home with your family. Imperfection and, is perfection, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, sometimes just losing. If, if You know what I mean? Sometimes for me, just like, you know, realizing like, yeah, you know what? If I really, if I really fought for whatever the fuck the stupid thing is and really get in a big fight with my wife over this and really exert myself, I think she's going to realize that I'm right. <laughs> so what? So what? What's on the other side of that? My right. my kid just like watches his parents squabble. I'm not saying you shouldn't fight, by the way. You got to fight for yourself and stick up for yourself and all that. But what I'm saying is, yeah, we got to like begin the process of really understanding that sometimes this is like what Ramdas says. He's, he says, I would rather choose being in love than being right. And I love that so much. And he doesn't mean in love, like, oh, in I mean, in, in love, like connecting to that field of love that is everything on one level. And then once you do that, the whole right thing kind of goes out the window. You know, like my, my son yesterday, we, he calls, we have some fruit trees in our yard, thank God. And he calls that non. It's the sweetest thing. It sounds like a Tolkien elf word for fruit. Non. Nan. And he'll point at the fruit and go, nan, nan. And um, so we go and pick it. I'll hold him up and I'll reach up and he'll grab the fruit and then he'll bring it down, we'll peel it, and then I'll feed it to him. Well, yesterday he bit the shit out of my finger <laughs> so hard, <laughs> like a snap. He didn't mean to. You know what I mean? Right. But it hurt. And, you know, I could have been right in that moment and really giving him a stern like you don't bite yeah, but but he didn't mean to you know but in that moment i was like ah what the hell forrest what did you do <laughs> and then uh, you know he looks at me with this look of like i'm he just hugged me you know <laughs> but my point is like in those moments it's love transcendent love i'm experiencing and in those moments being right ugh, it's like you know what i mean if we're looking at rightness and love it's like one of them is a buffet where all the items are spoiled, rotten food. And the other one is like this delicious, wonderful selection of the greatest things you've ever tasted, you know, but go ahead, eat the right buffet. You know, you're just going to get an upset stomach, but you'll be right. I would love for us to have a part two. Let's do it. Let's do it. Thank you, brother. And thank you for doing such a great interview. Damn, man, you like really... You're good. I really appreciated this conversation. I'm so glad you enjoyed the show. Hare Krishna. Well, let's talk again soon. I can't wait. <laughs>